0: Thank you so much for coming to the new writing series today. We have a very special reading with fiction writer Amy Bender and poet Christian Wyman. Um, And I'm going to turn over the podium to one of our MFA students, Jennifer Rittenour. Thanks, Jennifer. Hello. Um, I'm Jennifer Rittenour. And it is with great honor that I introduce fiction writer Amy Bender, who will be reading this evening. Amy Bender studied literature and writing as an undergraduate student here at UCSD. (laughs) She then continued on to receive her MFA from UCI, where she studied under Jeffrey Wolf and Judith Grossman. She is the author of two short story collections, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt and The Woeful Creatures, and two novels, An Invisible Sign of My Own and The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. Her work has been published in Tin House, McSweeney's, The Paris Review, and many other journals. She was nominated for the Tripti Award in 2005 and the Shirley Jackson Short Story Award in 2010. She is the recipient of two Pushcart Prizes and the 2010 Skibo Award in Best Fiction for her latest novel. She is a senior artist for the Imagination Workshop, a program in which the mentally ill and at-risk individuals write, direct, and act in their own plays. She lives in Los Angeles and teaches creative writing at USC. As an undergraduate student at USC, I had the privilege of having Amy as a professor. On the first day of Introduction to Fiction, Amy seemed to glide into the room, and if I squinted, I swore I would have seen her positive energy manifest itself into a group of fairies hanging onto the ends of her skirt. (laughs) It was this energy that created a sense of freedom in the classroom. We were allowed to write whatever we wanted. This freedom can be seen in her own writing, where a big man buys a little man as a pet, a boy can search for lost objects, and characters creepily keep vials of their lover's tears. The fairy tale, the surreal, the fantastical, these are all terms that are often applied to her work. But the description that I don't hear is one that Amy has used so often to describe my own work, though I want her to know that I learned it from her is writing that embodies compassion. To quote the 14th Dalai Lama, true compassion develops when we ourselves want happiness and not suffering for others, and recognize that they have every right to pursue this. Compassion compels us to reach out to all living beings, including our so-called enemies, those people who upset or hurt us, irrespective of what they do to you. If you remember that all beings like you are only trying to be happy, you will find it much easier to develop compassion towards them. This is what Amy's work teaches us. Under the layer of the fantastic, the heartbeat, as Professor Springer calls it, is compassion. We recognize that the big man wants to be a part of a community. We see the boy's search is really for family, and we feel the futility when the tear collector tries to hold on to severed human connections. And it is with happiness that I now introduce you to Amy Bender.
1: So, thank you, Jennifer, so much. It feels unusually special to get introduced by a student who is such a total joy to teach. So thank you. And it's also unusually special to read (laughs) at my undergrad alma mater. Um, I remember when the vices and virtues went up, and it was so exciting, and... um, this was probably 90 or 91. I graduated in 91, which was now 20 years ago. Um, my roommate and I, I feel like it was true that we recently had an answering machine, that that was new. Could that be? But we—we we, one of us said the vices, and one of us said the virtues in the collage, and we thought we were super awesome. <laughs> and I think we, it was just kind of great. So people would call and would be like, less, less, less gluttony, temperance, you know, whatever. So... Anyway, it's just particularly meaningful to read here, Um, and thank you, Sarah, for inviting me, Um, and the program. I also brought, just because it's, I went in my files and looked and found my very first publication, which was in something called the San Diego Writers Monthly, and it was, uh, they were kind of, I think it existed for maybe a year, and they had a young writer's part, so they were looking at UCSD students and kind of soliciting work. And that was very meaningful, and it was just fun to find it. November 91, and it was the first time I saw my name in print. So I just have all these associations to being here that feel kind of fun for me. Um, So I'm going to read a story that uh, is not yet in a collection, um, and it was a story made off an assignment from a magazine called Black Book that was pairing writers and painters and they gave me a, a choice of a few different painters and there was a painter I had, um, whose work I had seen over the years named Amy Cutler and she also was kind of making these amazing paintings based on fairy tales and not even based on fairy tales but they had leaked into her work in this kind of really interesting way and there were women with antlers and chairs on their dresses and um, she had this amazing one that she called Tiger Mending. I can't really tell you why, because it will be revealed in the story, but I can tell you what the painting is at a later point. Um, but the assignment was to write a story off the painting. So this is my story based on her painting called Tiger Mending. My sister got the job. She's the overachiever, and she went to med school for two years before she decided she wanted to be a gifted seamstress. What, they said on the day she left? A surgeon, they told her. You could be a tremendous surgeon. But she said she didn't like the late hours. She got too tired around midnight. She has small motor skills better than a machine. She'll fix your handkerchief so well you can't even see the stitches. Like she became one with a handkerchief. I once split my lip, jumping from the tree, and she sewed it up with ice and a needle she'd run through the fire. I never even had a scar, just the thinnest white line. So of course, when the two women came through the sewing school, they spotted her first. She was working on her final exam, a lime-colored ball gown with tiny diamonds sewn into the collar, and she was fully absorbed in it, constructing infinitesimal loops, while they hovered with their severe hair and heady tree smell, like bamboo, my sister said, watching her work. My sister, so steady, she didn't even flinch. But everyone else in class seized upon the distraction, staring at these two Amazonian women, both six feet tall and strikingly beautiful. When I met them later, I felt like I'd landed straight inside a magazine ad. At the time, I was working at Burger King as block manager. There were two on the block. And I took any distraction offered me and used it to its hilt. Once a guy came in and ordered a Big Mac, and I spent two days telling that story to every customer, and it's not a good story. <laughs> There's so rarely any intrigue in the Shabbardash world of burger warming, you take what you can get. But my sister was born with supernatural focus, and the two women watched her and her alone. Who can compete? My sister has won all the contests she's ever been in, not because she's such an outrageous competitor, but because she's so focused in this gentle way. Why not win? Sometimes it's all you need to run the fastest or to play the clearest piano or to ace the standardized test, pausing at each question until it has slid through your mind to exit as a penciled in circle. In low, sweet voices, they asked if she'd like to see Asia. She finally looked up from her work. Is there a sewing job there? They nodded. She said she'd love to see Asia. She'd never left America. They said, well... It's a highly unusual job. May I bring my sister, she asked. She's never, she's never traveled either. The two women glanced at each other. What does your sister do? She's manager of the Burger Kings, down on 4th. Their disapproval was faint but palpable, especially in the <coughs> upper lip. She would simply keep you company? What we are offering is a position of tremendous privilege, they said. Aren't you interested in hearing about it first? My sister nodded lightly. It sounds very interesting, she said, but I cannot travel without my sister. This is true. My sister, the one with that incredible concentration, has a terrible fear of airplanes. Terrible, incapacitating. The only way she can relax on a flight is if if I am there because I am always, always having some kind of crisis and she focuses in and fixes me and forgets her own concerns. I become her ripped hemline. In general, I call her every night, and we talk for an hour, which is 45 minutes me and 15 minutes of her stirring her tea, which she steeps with the kind of Zen patience that would make Buddhists sit up in envy and then breathe through their envy and then move past their envy. (laughs) I'm really, really lucky she's my sister. Otherwise, no one like her would give someone like me the time of day. The two Amazonian women, lousy with confidence, with their ridiculous cheekbones and these long yellow print dresses, I met them later, said okay. They observed my sister's hands quiet in her lap. Do you get along with animals? They asked, and she said yes. She loved all animals, without exception. Do you have allergies to cats? They asked, and she said no. She was only allergic to pine nuts. The slightly taller one reached into her dress pocket a pocket so well hidden inside the fabric it was like she was reaching into the ether of space, and from it, her hand returned with an airline ticket. We are very happy to have found you, they said. The additional ticket will arrive tomorrow. My sister smiled. I know her. She was probably terrified to see that ticket, and also she really wanted to turn, return to the Diamond Loops. She probably wasn't even that curious about her new job yet. She was and is stubbornly, mind-numbingly interested in the present moment. As kids, I used to come home and she'd be at the living room window. It was the best window in the apartment and looked out in the far distance on the tip of a mountain. For years, I'd tried to get her to play with me, but she was unplayable. She stared out that window, never moving, for over three hours. By night, when she'd returned, I'd usually injured myself in some way or another and I asked her about it as she tended to me. She said the reason she could pay acute attention now was because of the window. It empties me out, she said, which scared me. No, she said to my frightened face, and she sat on the edge of my bed and ran a washcloth over my forehead. It's good, she said. It makes room for other things. Me, I asked with hope, and she nodded. You. We had no parents by that point. One had left, and the other had died at the hands of a surgeon, which is the real reason my sister had stopped medical school. That night, she called me up and told me to quit my job, which is what I've been praying for for months, that somehow I get a magical phone call telling me to quit my job because I was going on an exciting vacation. (laughs) I threw down my BK apron, packed, and prepared as long as an account of my life complaints as I could. On the plane, I asked my sister what we were doing, what her job was, But she refolded her tray table and said nothing. Asia, I said. What country? She stared out the porthole. It was the airplane that told us as we buckled our seatbelts. We were heading to Kuala Lumpur, straight into the heart of Malaysia. Wait, where is Malaysia again? I whispered. My sister drew a map on the napkin beneath her ginger ale. During the flight, I drank Bloody Marys while my sister embroidered a doily. Even watching her work seemed to soothe the other passengers. I whispered all my problems into her ear and she returned them back to me in slow sentences that did the work of a lullaby. My eyes grew heavy. (coughs) During the descent, she gave the doily to the man across the aisle, worried about his ailing son, and the needlework was so elegant it made him feel better just holding it. That's the thing with handmade items. They still have the maker's mark on them, and when you hold them, you feel less alone. This is why everybody that eats a Whopper leaves a little more depressed than they were when they arrived. (laughs) Nobody cooked that burger. When we arrived, a friendly driver took us to a cheerful green hotel where we found a note on the bed telling her to be ready at 6 a.m. sharp. It didn't say I could come, but bright and early, scrubbed and fed, we faced the two Amazons in the lobby, who looked scornfully at me and my unsteady hands. I sort of pick at my hair a lot and asked my sister why I was there. Can not she watch, she asked, and they said they weren't sure. She, they said, might be too anxious. I swear I won't touch anything, I said. This is a private operation, they said. My sister breathed. I work best when she's nearby, she said, please. And like usual, it was the way she said it, in that gentle voice that had a back to it. They opened the car door. Thank you, my sister said. They blindfolded us for privacy's sake, and we drove for over an hour through winding, screeching roads, parking finally in a place that smelled like garlic and fruit. In front of a stone mansion, two more women dressed in printed robes waved as we removed our blindfolds. These two were short, (coughs) delicate, calm. They led us into the living room and we hadn't been there for 10 minutes when we heard the moaning. A bad moaning sound, a real bad, real real mournful moaning coming from the north outside that reminded me of the worst loneliness, the worst long lonely night. The Amazonian with the short shining cap of hair nodded. Those are the tigers, she said. "What tigers, I said. "'Shh,' she said. "'I will call her Sloan for no reason, "'except that it's a good name for an intimidating person.' "'Sloan said, "'Shh, quiet now.' "'She took my sister by the shoulders "'and led her to the wide window that looked out on the land, "'as if she knew instinctively how wise it was "'to place my sister at a window. "'Watch,' Sloan whispered. "'I stood behind.' The two women from the front walked into our view and settled on the ground near some clumps of ferns. They waited. They were very still-minded, like my sister, that stillness of mind, that ability I will never have to sit still, that ability to have the hands, forget they are hands. They closed their eyes and the moaning I'd heard before got louder and then in the distance, I mean way off, the moaning grew louder. Almost unbearable to hear, and limping from the side, lumbered two enormous tigers, wailing as if they were dying. As they got closer, you could see that their backs were split open, sort of peeled, as if someone had torn them in two. The fur was matted, and the stripes hung loose like packing tape ripped off their bodies. The women did not seem to move, but two glittering needles worked their way out of their knuckles, climbing up out into their hands, and one of the tigers stepped closer. I thought I'd lose it. He was easily four times her size and she was small, a tiger's snack, but he limped over in his giantness and fell into her lap, let his heavy striped head sink to the ground. She smoothed the stripe back over and the first moment she pierced his fur with the needle, those big cat eyes dripped over with tears. It was very powerful. It brought me to tears, too. Those expert hands, as steady as if he were a pair of pants, while the tiger's enormous head hung to the ground. My sister didn't move, but I cried and cried, seeing those giant, broken animals resting in the laps of the small, precise women. It is so often surprising who rescues you at your lowest moment. When our mother died in surgery, the jerk at the liquor store suddenly became the nicest man alive and gave us free cranberry juice for a year. What happened to them, I asked Sloane. Why are they like that? She lifted her chin slightly. We do not know, she said, but they emerge from the forests, unpeeling, more and more of them, always torn at the central stripe. Do they ever eat people? Not so far, she said, but they do not respond well to fidgeting, she said, watching me clear out my thumbnail with my other thumbnail. Well, I'm not doing it. You have not been asked, she said. They're so sad, said my sister. Well, wouldn't you be, said Sloan, if you were a tiger, unpeeling? Sloan put a hand on my sister's shoulder. When the mending was done, all four, women and beasts, sat in the sun for at least half an hour, tiger chests heaving, woman's hands clutched in its fur. The day grew warm. In the distance, the moaning began again and two more tigers limped up while the next two stretched out and slept on the ground. The women sewed the next two and the next. One had a bloody rip across its white belly. After a few hours of work, the women put their needles away. The tigers raised themselves up and without any lick or acknowledgement, walked off deep into that place where tigers lived. The women returned to the house. Inside, they smelled so deeply and earthily of cats that they were almost unrecognizable. They also seemed lighter, nearly giddy. It was lunchtime. They joined us at the table where Sloan served an amazing soup of curry and prawns. It is an honor, said Sloan, to mend the tigers. I see, said my sister. You will need very little training since your skill level is already so high but my sister seemed frightened in a way I hadn't seen before. She didn't eat much of her soup, and she returned her eyes to the window, to the tangles of fluttering leaves. I would have to go find out, she said finally, when the chef entered with a tray of mango tartlets. Find out what? Why they unpeel, she said. She hung her head as if she was ashamed of her interest. You are a mender, said Sloan gently, not a zoologist. I support my sister's interest in the source, I said. (laughs) Sloan flinched every time I opened my mouth. The source, my sister echoed. The world has changed, said Sloan, passing a mango tartlet to me reluctantly, which I ate pronto. It was unlike my sister to need the cause. She was fine usually with just how things were. But she whispered to me as we roamed outside, looking for clues of which we found none. She whispered that she felt something dangerous in the unpeeling, and she felt she would have to know about it in order to sew the tiger suitably. I'm not worried about the sewing, she said. I'm worried about the gesture I place inside the thread. I nodded. I'm a good fighter, is all. I don't care about thread gestures, but I'm willing to throw a punch at some tiger asshole if need be. We spent the rest of the day outside, but there were no tigers to be seen. Where they lived was somewhere far, far off, and the journey they took to arrive here must have been the worst time of their lives, ripped open like that, suddenly prey to vultures or other predators when usually they were the ones to instill fear. We slept that night in the mansion, in feather beds so soft I found them impossible to sleep in. Come morning they had my sister join the other two outside, And I cried again, watching the big tiger head at her feet while she sewed. The three together were unusually productive and sewn tigers piled up around them. But instead of that giddiness that showed up in the other women, my sister grew heavier that afternoon, and she said she was sure she was doing something wrong. "'Oh, no,' said Sloan, serving us tea. "'You were remarkable.' "'I'm missing something,' said my sister. "'I'm missing something important.' Sloan retired for a nap, but I snuck out. I had been warned, but really they were treating me like shit anyway. I walked a long distance, but I'm a sturdy walker, and I trusted where my feet went, and I did not like the sight of my sister staring into her teacup. I did not like the feeling it gave me of worrying. Before I left, I sat her in front of the window and told her to empty herself, and her eyes were grateful in a way I was used to feeling in my own face, but not accustomed to seeing in hers. I walked for hours, and the wet air clung to my shirt and hair. I took a nap inside some ferns. The sun was setting, and I would have walked all night, but when I reached a cluster of trees, something felt different. There was no wailing yet, but I could feel the stirring before the wailing, which is almost worse. I swear I could feel the dread. I climbed up a tree and waited. I don't know what I expected. People, I guess. People with knives cutting in. I did not expect to see the tigers themselves, jumpy, agitated, yawning their mouths beyond wide, the wildness to their eyes, and finally the yawning so large and insistent that they split their own back in two. They all did it, one after the other, as if they wanted to peel their own fur off their backs, and then amazed at what they'd done, the wailing began. One by one, they left the trees and began their slow journey to be mended it left me with the oddest most unsettled feeling I walked back when it was night under a half moon and I found my sister still at the window they do it to themselves I whispered to her and she took my hand her face lightened thank you she said she tried to hug me but I pulled away no no I said, and in the morning, I left for the airport. Oh, yeah. Do I have a question now? You didn't know how the questions went. I'm totally happy to answer questions. I wasn't sure. Yeah. Can you repeat the
0: question for the recording?
1: Yes, of course. So, what questions do you have? I like answering questions. Usually it usually takes a minute. This is my water. That's your water. <laughs> yes, please.
0: So, I mean, uh, like a lot of the other stories you've read, it's a very interesting premise and kind of an interesting like um, plot there. What, what inspired that? How did you, um, Is that was that something that was happening I mean,
1: I like the question. So so to repeat there's something about the idea of plots and premises and how do they come about and um I mean this one was handed to me in a nice way and that what now I can tell you about the painting which is I think it's two to three women with these kind of precise hairdos in front of two large tigers with these sewing needles sewing up the stripes. So she handed me this incredible dreamlike image of women sewing tigers and then my job was then to create the world around that and to think about why do I think that they they were like that and what was the role of these women and what might be a conflict inside that. You know, things I wasn't thinking of consciously necessarily, but just exploring that image. So, so that was an easier one than um, sort of dreaming up something on my own. But I think... Um, a lot of, I, I write for a block of time in the morning and I kind of have this set block of time and my rule I have is I just have to sit there and um, basically what's happened is I, I get super bored and then I start to make things up out of boredom because I have this rule that I have to be sitting there. So... Um, so I'll try out lots of different story ideas out of desperation. And I have many, many files of one to two sentences that didn't go anywhere. And it's all searching for the image, really, or idea or word or sentence that has a second sentence in it and it has a third sentence in it. And I don't know which one that's going to be, but it seems like I have to get caught up in the premise as well. So it has to be something where there's... Um, enough question or curiosity in me to follow it along and find out um, what the emotion is underneath it. Other question. Yes? How does your
0: um, editing process work after you write your first draft uh, for stories, and also is there any difference you feel in that process when you're working on the uh, law form?
1: So the question, I'm repeating the questions for this um, recording, and it's the edit, what is the editing process like and how is it different short form and long form? Does that yeah, yeah. summarize it more or less? Um, so, uh, yeah, what I'll do is I'll often, if I hit upon a premise or an idea that I feel like has something in it, then I'll, I'll move forward with it, and um, I'll try to do that as almost as quickly as I can, and I won't be going back until then. The next day when I'm reading it over... And I'll start to look and see. Oh, I kind of want to know more here. Like to treat myself almost as a reader, a cold reader of my own work. And oh, this line is repeating a feeling that's already in place, and all these things. So I would say it's a constant process of this rereading. And uh, the writer Carolyn See has this quote that I like, which where she says she knows she's done revising when she can read something through without wincing. Mm-hmm. So so a lot of it is monitoring that wincing and going through and saying, ah. Oh, Something's off here. Something rhythmically off, or um, in terms of content, or character, or whatever. But then, with yeah, it's so different with short stories and novels because a short story you can kind of read it through in a sitting, and a novel is a lot more of a, of a kind of wandering. For me, I know that there are writers who outline or writers who sort of semi-outline or writers who have an end, and I kind of have nothing. So there's a, there's kind of a lateral wandering. And then it's rereading scenes and still seeing, well, is there something in this scene that will spark another scene, maybe or maybe not? And in going back, revising the, the scene, almost like it, it itself is a short story, but maybe in the revision, I add a paragraph that will lead me to another chapter that I didn't know was there. So it means I cut a lot. I end up cutting, you know, hundreds of pages. But I don't know another way to do it. Yes, in the middle. Do I keep the work that I cut? I mean, right, the fact that I have San Diego Writer's Notes from 1991 gives you a clue. Qu- yes, I keep it all. I keep it all. I mean, of course, I was going to keep this because it's so dear to me, but I keep it all. Um, I think it is helpful, particularly because I work in this, this way where I'm sitting there for a couple hours and I have nothing to do except write. It's helpful to look at old files, and many times I've discovered a sentence or an image that I had discarded that then leads to something... Ten years later, so that these images can kind of sit dormantly and then rise up. And that's been nice to see, because I think I initially felt a certain pressure. Like, if you don't catch it at that moment, if you don't catch a story at that moment, like a butterfly, it will, you know, migrate to San Luis Obispo. But they stick around. <laughs> if they're interesting enough to you, they'll stick around. I think. Yeah? Or by a computer and why do I write by hand or by computer and why I write by computer um, and it, it actually relates in that um, in that first draft where I'm kind of almost trying to write quickly so that I don't know what's going on it's better if I'm caught up in it I'm much faster on a computer and um, but but the story I love about handwriting is the opposite end of the spectrum is the wonderful comic book and novelist um Comic book writer and novelist Linda Berry, who was writing the book that became cruddy, which is a fantastic novel if you haven't read it. It's so funny and dark and fresh and beautiful. And she was thinking too fast, and I think typing was too similar to her thinking. So she wanted to slow herself down. So she would and she knows calligraphy and she knows about comic book writing. So she would grind Chinese ink. She would sort of get this specialty Chinese ink. She would grind it or or do the thing that you do to it. I think you grind down the ink and you make this beautiful ink. And then she did the whole novel in calligraphy so that every single word slowed her down enough so that she went step by step. So that would not work for me at all because I would just feel very slowed down. But I love that as the counterbalance to the kind of computer speed that most of us, I think, use. And then she sold the pages on eBay once the book was out. There's one in my office So if you ever come by. You can see it. Yes. I
0: was
1: back in, you know, Southeast Asia, and I could actually imagine how it felt and it really but. Great. I mean, that's, and it's, it's a question about setting um, and building setting and have, have I been to these places or not? And I was just talking about, I had this flicker of a thought as I was reading the story because I was just talking about this with someone where I think there's an, I think it's an Anthony Doar story where he sets it in a country in Africa that I think he had not been, I think, but I'm not completely sure it's him. But um, no, I've never been to Malaysia, and so it was doing a little bit of research to try to convey it. But that's where kind of the craft tools kick in. So I'm really glad to hear that it it felt realistic to you. And it was those craft tools of the senses and kind of looking to see, well, what materials are there going to be? What plants? What would it smell like? What would it feel like? And that was a risk because I hadn't done that before. I had always written about places I'd at least been to once. Um, but it was really fun to try to imagine it. And also, to be, I think the surreal quality helps in that it's not regular Malaysia, it's this kind of fantastical Malaysia where there's a place where this happens. Yeah? I think what holds it together is the codependent relationship of the sisters. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the place where it is. Mm-hmm. and. Out of that codependent relationship, it seems like this this tiger narrative mm-hmm. is allowed to go off in its own fantastic way. But it seems to me that that relationship is really grounded in, in a certain space and time. Yeah. No, I'm glad. And in terms of right, the relationship between the sisters and the, yeah, and the tigers. And I think of them as kind of right that that's a kind of setting unto itself. Yeah. yeah and is crucial. And that whatever the mirror is of the tigers, that that's. The relationship is the center of the story. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah? Um, I really love the uh, the fairy tale, mystical, dream like surreal feelings.
0: Thank you.
1: Um, so in terms of, right, the difference of the voices the more kind of dreamy sister and the more Frank sister, say, the Burger King sister. And if that wasn't in the painting. I mean, I think a lot of it was trying to figure out a voice that could get to that moment in the painting. And so I, was, I have a file, again, not throwing away, you know, and something I've looked back at. I have this file of all the experiments that I was trying out with all these different Amy Cutler paintings. And, and one where, um, and they were, they were not quite working and were maybe too dreamy. And there was one where someone was interviewing for a job of Tiger Mender. And the interviewee was more like this character. And she wasn't going to get the job. It was so clear that there was no way they were going to hire her. But she really wanted it. And then somehow that led to this voice of of there being two of them. Um, One equipped and one maybe more real. And thank you for the nice compliment. Yeah, in the back. And what was... how Do I pick and choose how much... information... I mean, it's, it's interesting because... In, and the question was how much information to put in a kind of fantastical world. Because you could go on and on. There's so much to look at. But there's always so much to look at. I mean, that, that's the other thing, too, where it feels like a writer's job is always editing down the world. Because if we try to write down every moment of our experience, there's no story. You know, we will never... There's too much. It's constant. So... Um, so, in some, like I think, um, I think of Raymond Carver as such a good teacher in this way because uh, when you look at Carver, then he'll create an image of, there's this um, description in what we talk about when we talk about love where he's saying one of the characters sitting at the table wears turquoise jewelry and she's just there. Like, I, I see her with the turquoise jewelry in a way that I wouldn't if he was like, her nose was a little bit like this and that, and she had a certain kind of eyelash. You know, like, he could go through her entire body, and suddenly, with the turquoise jewelry, I'm there with her. So I think it's that's where it comes into figuring out what details are you drawn to, which ones evoke a place or a person. And and sometimes, for me, I think they come from from not a kind of conscious thinking and mapping out, but trying to get inside the story, the world of the story, enough that you're looking around and picking out details. That's the hardest part, I think, is to get into the story enough that you pick and choose. So, because like you say, it could go on and on. So I don't know if that really answers it satisfactorily, but something like that. Picking and choosing... More. There was, I think, there was one hand that I missed. No. Yes, and Jennifer, last one. What is your approach to writing a novel, and how do you go know about organizing it? Hmm. So, what is my approach to writing a novel, and how do I go about organizing it? It's, it's such an interesting process because it's. There's a great Flannery O'Connor quote where she's like, writing a novel makes you pull out your hair and. Your teeth fall out, and all these things happen to you because it's so agonizing. Which is kind of relieving because there's something um, difficult about the leap of faith to sustain the interest in the narrative over you know a certain amount of time that it takes to write a novel, and that could be so you know such a span depending on the person. So for me, then basically the. The wandering has helped me out, so I'll wander and I'll build scenes and I'll kind of start to see where the preoccupations are just by writing what I feel like writing on any given day and then I seem to be writing about the same thing, you know, enough of the days that that the same character keeps showing up. I remember a clear moment in my first novel draft where I realized two of the characters could be consolidated and that was so exciting because it felt suddenly like the story got a lot smaller. It was this kind of mess... And then the math teacher and the hardware store owner were the same guy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's great because then when she goes to the hardware store, she can be talking to her math teacher. Anyway, so, so some of it then was, yeah, looking at the pages, like printing out pages and laying them on the floor and looking at them and saying, like, okay, which are the pages I like and sort of leaning towards those pages and saying, well, what's going on in those? And yeah, who might be the same person showing up in different ways? And then the sort of brain-splitting pain of, of trying to sense of like what might come after what. Or with both novels that I've published, I wrote the ending sometime in the middle and didn't know it was the ending and then later thought, oh, I do have the ending. It's here, and that it, it wasn't with that like gravitas of now I'm ending my novel, don't you know, that feeling of like here I am writing the ending of my novel. It was not that at all. It was much more that feeling of like I'm writing, I'm filling up my two hours, and then later looking back and saying, huh, something has resolved. And so, so some of it for me at least is that kind of laying it out and, and then clumping together a really messy draft. And starting to then look at that draft and change that draft. And and then it begins to feel like a short story. Only then, like years in, can I start to feel like, oh, I can revise this for rhythm, for emotion, for character arc, all that stuff. When at first it's just, um, yeah, laying all those bits out. And, you know, I don't necessarily recommend it as an approach. <laughs> but I think if you're not good at planning, or you, the planning doesn't work for the way that you think and make a book, then it seems to me like it has some workability. All right, thank you so much.